0: You're listening to Impulse to Innovation. The Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Helen Mees. As a global community of mechanical engineers, with over 120,000 members in 140 countries, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers has been at the heart of the engineering profession since 1847. The institution's mission is to improve the world through engineering by sharing the latest news, views and insight into the creative world of technology and the people that make it happen. In this month's episode, we will be focusing on electric vehicles and batteries, the challenges and opportunities electrification brings and what the future holds for EV technology. I talk with Williams Advanced Engineering Technical Director Paul McNamara about the upcoming IMechE International EV Batteries 2020 virtual conference, which will be held on the 11th and 12th of November. Paul is chair of the event and shared with me some of the exciting topics up for discussion, which include the challenges of transport decarbonisation, battery cell sustainability and lifecycle management of battery materials. My old IMAC key policy colleague and now stakeholder engagement director at the Advanced Propulsion Centre, Philippa Oldham, joins me to discuss her role in bringing together organisations from across the transport industry to develop innovative strategies for EV integration. She shares her thoughts on some of the latest EV technology developments and what to look out for over the next five years. And I speak with actor, fully charged host and passionate EV enthusiast, Robert Llewellyn, as we discuss the outcomes from Tesla Battery Day, the opportunities for vehicle-to-grid charging, and the UK government's policy on electrification and EV city planning. Despite moving to a fully virtual setting this year, the imac International EV Batteries 2020 conference is as popular as ever. The two-day conference hosts a myriad of experts from across the EV battery and energy storage community, where delegates will hear the latest developments in battery design, testing, thermal management and integration. Paul McNamara, Technical Director at Williams Advanced Engineering and Chair of the conference, took time out to speak with me about the importance of the event and what innovative developments we can look forward to seeing in the EV market in the coming years. Hi, Paul. Uh, Thank you ever so much for joining us on today's episode. I'm really pleased to have you here. Paul, could we just start by giving our listeners an idea about yourself and what you do and and your involvement in the IMAC's International EV Battery 2020 Conference?
1: Yeah, thanks, Helen. So, Paul McNamara from Williams Advanced Engineering. So, I'm a technical director here and we've specialised ourselves in electrification over the last few years. In terms of the EV conference at the IMHQ, I, th- I think it's the fourth or fifth year that that conference has been run by the key. I've been involved as part of the organising team for it, supporting the team at the Key, and have always chaired at least one of the days uh, of the conference. It's certainly been one of those conferences that's built every year. And I think the consistency that the IMAq has shown in, in keeping it there and promoting it each year has, has really grown it as one of the most important conferences of its uh, type in the UK at the moment.
0: It's not my field uh, of engineering, so I didn't know much about the conference. So uh, it's been really great to to read up about what's been going on and see that it's it's been going for quite a number of years now, which is great. Now, I'm going to ask you a fairly obvious question next, uh, I guess, for for someone in your position. But for our listeners who are not that familiar with the the electric vehicles and electric vehicle technology, why are EVs and particular battery technology and battery development so vitally important to society right now? I guess that's a big open question, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I guess, you know, at at a sort of Uh, obvious level, um, the decarbonization, uh, agenda is a, is a key driver for it. Um, now it's clear that the direction of travel for transportation as far as possible is to, uh, move to low carbon sources. Electrification is something that is demonstrated, realizable, a growing, uh, technology and manufacturing base behind it and also whatever your persuasion with respect to wanting to use hydrogen or gas or whatever all of those solutions have a sig- significant element of electrification around them because yeah the electric drivetrain is a common to all of that and some form of battery storage is a common to all of that so the technology and the manufacturing that applies to it is important. Now the headlines tend to go to passenger cars, consumer vehicles around this, but actually equally important is what we're going to do about commercial vehicles and off-highway, aircraft, all of these things. And again, whilst those won't become not all of them will become pure electric means of transport, batteries and electric drivetrains will be an important part of all of that, coupled up with other technologies. So I think right, the yeah, yeah the, the the sort of pioneering technology is being done in passenger cars. It's being, I mean, my own particular interest, obviously, motorsport. We're we're very involved in that, and that drives a lot of technology, and that will flow out into many other sectors. Um, so yeah, that that's the importance. The in terms of what we're trying to cover at our conference, I mean, we're we're looking at the whole. Um, supply chain how the cells are being manufactured in the first place how that industrialization is coming about to support it and how the government initiatives support that but then moving on to recycling uh, control charging infrastructure all these topics that go around electrification are, are also being covered in our conference
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important for people to to recognise it's not just the industry itself, but the, the supply chain as well everything that goes into the manufacture of those um those products we have to be discussing uh, in these kind of conferences you mentioned uh, actually about the conference running for a number of years and um and there's a lot of big players uh, who come from the world of EVs and and energy storage and they attend this conference but from them what are you hoping will be the highlights for you and what are you looking forward to the most in hearing about at the conference this year well
1: we've got as we were saying, a big variety of different um, speakers there. So we've got new initiatives um, from companies like British Vault in terms of manufacturing of cells in the first place. We've got a nice uh, section of three papers dealing with electrification in aerospace um, and how the needs for batteries as part of some form of uh, a solution for aerospace there, plus a good few papers on heavy-duty and commercial applications. And that's all in addition to the bulk of it, which is around the more traditional light-duty space with various manufacturers of vehicles uh, coming to talk about what their innovations is. And supporting that as well, some science-style papers looking at the next steps forward in chemistries and cell technologies that will come into the market in the future. So I think we've got a very broad range of things, and I'm certainly looking forward to the two days that brings together all of that. And you, you always tend to get a sense at the end of this conference about how all the different parts of the industry are coming together and what the trends, therefore, are likely to be over the coming years as all the different actors trying to bring together battery technology and electric drivetrain technology uh, will respond to challenges we've got.
0: Yeah, the electric vehicle market has been cited by uh, the Advanced Propulsion Centre in their new report as critical for the post-pandemic UK. And they've, they believe that it could benefit the UK's economy by £24 billion. And that's going to make uh, some great opportunities for both the Wider engineering sector, but also the automotive industries as well. What kind of technology developments are we expecting to see in the next five years? and what kind of future innovations will be on show at the conference? you've you've kind of touched on that a little bit, but I, I'd like to uh, get much more of a sense of what what we'll be seeing in the future. Well, I
1: think just just to sort of echo your, your your question a bit in in terms of the automotive industry uh, or the transport industry in the UK, the electrification, commercial impact and and what the APC has said is absolutely right. I mean, we we are a major producer of vehicles. We're a major producer of internal combustion engines. Those vehicles will need electric drivetrains for the future. And as we produce less internal combustion engines, we as a nation will need to produce more electric drivetrains. So it's key that we continue to push forward with our efforts there. In terms of the technologies that we will see, Heavy-duty applications, which I think is a new engineering challenge for the industry, as to how we're we going to deal with heavy-duty. Does it have to be some sort of hybrid solution, potentially with hy- hydrogen or something else, or, or can we see it forward uh, in pure electric vehicles? I think the, I think there's three papers dealing with that topic. We then have aerospace as well, and I think there we are looking at some papers again. I think it's clear to everybody that electrification is some sort of hybrid with other energy sources and there's different thoughts on that and there's also agnostic to what the other energy source is as to what have we got to deliver in terms of the uh, electric batteries and powertrains. We have yeah. some papers on fast charging. Fast charging, I think, is going to become a key issue for the future because that's a usability of these vehicles um, as well as the manufacturing and then recycling is another key area because, of course, if we're putting this up as a low-carbon technology, which indeed it is, you have to take account of the whole life cycle of the manufacturer and the recycling. So all of those are covered, and I think, yeah, to anybody attending the conference, I think it will give a very rounded picture of where we're headed with that. Uh, I wouldn't want to sort of second-guess at this point as to what the conclusions coming out from that will be as a sort of conference summary, but certainly... Yeah. What we've seen over the last few years at the conference is, I think, um, in the discussion groups we have, and I think the conference is quite well organised so that we get uh, discussion time as well to sort of try and bring together the views that we've heard and perhaps try and produce some consensus or sort a of way forward as well. So I think that'll be interesting.
0: It sounds absolutely fascinating, Paul, and, and I'm very um, pleased to hear the the, the discussion around sustainability uh, of of the products and the life cycle, um, and how you might address the sort of cradle to grave or cradle to cradle processes within uh, dealing with the with the batteries. So that's that's really good news to hear.
1: Yeah, I think it is, and I think I think that's a key area where the industry has really taken uh, responsibility for that. Uh, I think in this still relatively new uh push to create electrification i think that's something that's been in there right from the start is a sense that we have to produce a solution here that is sustainable throughout and you know i've seen a number of papers over the years looking at the amount of energy that goes into an ev versus a conventional ic engine thing and, and certainly you know quite a lot of work has shown it actually requires a lot more energy to produce it. so we've got to show a payback that's effective and we've got to show a recycling at the end of it because I don't think anybody wants to see us just continually mining the sorts of rare metals that we need for our batteries without some means of being able to replenish that at the start of the cycle again.
0: yeah abso- absolutely. Um, I think that's that's a very important point to make. Paul, thank you ever so much for taking the time to, to talk to me today. I, I'm very excited about this conference. If anybody is listening and would like to attend, it's going to be on the 11th and 12th of November. Is that right, Paul? Yeah, that's
1: right. Um, this this year, it's a virtual conference, of course, so even easier to get to than previous years.
0: Yes, so that might encourage a lot more people to attend, which uh, which would be great. So thank you ever so much. And I really do appreciate your time to talk to us today. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Philippa Oldham has been a leading voice in the transport industry for many years, both as Transport Manufacturing Policy Manager at the imac where she produced a number of influential reports and articles on transportation, and latterly as Director of Stakeholder Engagement at the Advanced Propulsion Centre, where she leads a team who are challenging existing silos across the transport industry to help create strategies for innovative low-carbon propulsion solutions. I began by asking Philippa about her role as Director. Philippa, congratulations on your recent appointment to Director of Stakeholder Engagement at the Advanced Propulsion Centre. Can you share with our listeners what that role entails and how that fits into the work of the APC? Thanks, Helen. Yeah,
2: really exciting. Thank you. Um, All a bit all-consuming as well, as you can imagine. Um, I suppose um, for the listeners, I'm not sure how familiar they will be with the Advanced Propulsion Centre. So, I thought I'd just give you a a little bit of background before I tell you about my my current role and and what that entails. Um, But the um, APC set up in 2013 as a joint government, so a Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, um, and the Automotive Council, and so industry, got together to look at actually what could they do to really accelerate and strengthen um, R and D within the UK automotive sector. So it was formed in two thousand and thirteen. Um, lifetime is, is est- was estimated at that point to be um, ten years, um, with a billion pounds of investment, and so that is fifty percent coming from government and fifty percent coming from industry. Um, of that, they they obviously set some targets because you know we always have to achieve our targets, don't we? Um, yeah. And that was about um creating and, and safeguarding around thirty thousand jobs and looking at the reduction of CO two emissions by about fifty million tons. Now, um what's exciting about this is is at the end of last year, we sort of did a bit of impact analysis and looked at the projects that we funded and, and how they were performing, if you like. So I went back on them, and actually, what we found is, is we, we funded um, one hundred thirteen different. Different projects, um, and and actually, we've say We've already safeguarded forty thousand jobs. So already ten thousand over the expectation, um, and and we're projected to save 225 million tonnes of CO2 so you know way above that that initial 50 million that was expected. Fantastic. Um, and I suppose to put that into context that's kind of sort of the equivalent of taking around eight nine million cars off the road for their sort of whole lifetime emissions so it, it, it kind of puts it a little bit in perspective really. Yeah. Um, yeah so and, and, and so I suppose Predominantly, that's that's what the APC is known for is, is essentially being that funding platform. But we also um, provide insights. So we have the uh, we're sort of the custodians of the um, Automotive councils technology and product roadmaps. So this goes across the bus sector, the heavy duty and off highway, and the passenger car markets, um, looking at the product developments and what we can expect to see in terms of their propulsion solutions um, out to sort of twenty fifty. And then we also look around the technologies, so batteries, power. Electric electronics, electric machines. And again, look at what potential targets should be, what potential European legislation is, and look at where the technology is going and the innovation is going to really help if you like steer some of that strategy and I mean of course that's done by our technology trends team so it's crystal ball gazing if you like um, especially out in those later years so and so then and then it comes on to the, the spoke network which are very much about bringing the community together and that's kind of where my I suppose job before my promotion was was looking after the spoke network which are focused around the technology areas so we have six batteries or electrical energy energy storage, electric machines, power electronics, uh, two thermal propulsion spokes so, or internal combustion engines, as, as many may know them, um, one around systems efficiency um, and one around thermal thermal efficiency. And then we have um, a digital engineering and test spoke as well. But really what they try and do is, is bring together academia, industry, um, government organisations, non-government organisations, look across the sectors so they're not they're not just auto focus, but run right. events and really look at those challenges and make sure that potentially research we're seeing in un, in universities is is relevant to industry but also yeah. actually and and what's really exciting for me in terms of an example is thermal we we I mean we we're, we're both from you know engineering backgrounds and engine backgrounds is that you know thermal dynamics and thermal efficiency is a real challenge or has been over the years in with the internal combustion engine and actually what we're seeing is similar with thermal runaway in batteries and in electric machines and power electronics. So we're seeing those individuals who have got those skills in thermal management and thermal modelling actually transferring their knowledge into those other technology areas. Right, so it's okay, a really yeah. interesting time for, for skill development actually um, in that side of it. So so my current role is is A, doing all that still um, but I've also um, absorbed sort of the uh, marketing and communications function as well. And really, one of the things that we're trying to do at the Advanced Propulsion Centre Center, Center is, is drive, you know, UK ambition and UK resilience and growth, if you like, um, across the sector and almost show how good the automotive sector is and the supply chain related to it to, you know, either attract foreign investment here in the UK, but really champion about some of these organisations and some of the small businesses that you know many have not heard of and really look at how we can help them um, through their journey to you know grow from initial startups potentially right through to hopefully larger medium-sized organizations.
0: Yeah well that that's a really good point to make Philippa because um, your recent report uh, on strategic opportunities uh, in the passenger car electrification area and you you talk in that report and I quote, the UK already has the building blocks of a thriving supply chain and therefore provides a good backdrop for investments to meet domestic, European, and in some cases, global demand. Now, we we don't often think of the UK as being a centre for EV and and battery supply and manufacture. So can you tell us a little bit about the size and scale of that industry and, and, and where the growing market sectors are?
2: Yeah, so um, so the UK produces around uh, 1.2 million cars today, and you know we actually produce a lot of the luxury and premium vehicles, so you know the Jaguar Land Rover, the Aston Martin, the McLarens, Um, and actually with those vehicles they're going to require bigger batteries, and actually this gives us an opportunity to move the battery solution on faster than some of our competitors. But one of the one of the things actually that we we did we did a, a couple of years ago, and actually it's a bit of a prequel to this report we started to look at the the battery chemistry and what was required and actually sort of thought was well, anyone think thought about engaging with the the chemical sector yeah. um and so we, so we did a bit of diving in, into that area and actually we found that not um, a lot of engagement had happened between our chemical sector and our automotive <laughs> sector and um, so actually we, we've helped bring those relationships together and we found for example that in the UK we've got the Europe's second largest nickel refinery um, that's already supplying uh, battery producers in Asia. Um, We've got one of um, Europe's largest lithium-ion battery production plants up in Sunderland. Um, And we've also got uh, Europe's largest automotive uh, lithium-ion battery electrolyte plant uh, manufacturer here. So it's really you know, you, you start to dig, don't you? And and you, you suddenly uncover all of these different skills and companies and, and great organizations that you've had. And I suppose with the with the report that, you know, that got us a bit excited, I, and and the the technology trends teams that I mentioned earlier, and we and we started to think about, well, let's have a look at the global market. So, you know, um by 2025, global EV market is is expected to reach around 97 billion. So we obviously then thought, well, you know can't be that greedy, um, so you know address it back and scale it back to actually see what is achievable and and within that report and the analysis that we did, we found the opportunities around twenty four billion um of actually addressable market and within that 12 billion of that is is for the batteries Um, and and the reason essentially that is for the largest number if you like is because of the the cost of the battery within the vehicle you know it's around 50 percent of the cost of an electric vehicle so it's 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 where the investment and where the innovation needs to happen really and so that's that's something that we we've, we've tried to focus on and really look at where where those opportunities are and within the report we try and focus and highlight sort of 12 key areas and, and much of those are around you know look, looking at the development of the key anode manufacturing cathode manufacturing um but also looking at the resilience of the supply chain so for example the magnets within the electric machines um currently we're very well 100% dependent on those permanent magnets um coming from China. So, actually, right. are there alternatives, ways, and actually, could we potentially form a, a permanent magnet manufacturing uh, capability within the UK? And, and we're doing a lot of research and studies within that. So, we're hoping that with this report, it almost attracts um, companies to then you know come and bid for um, APC funding to, to address some of those challenges.
0: That's fantastic. It sounds very exciting, and uh I mean, it's not a field that I know an awful lot about. so to hear that that all of that is going on across the u k and that we are really driving this forward, i think is is a fantastic uh opportunity, as you mentioned about skills and people moving into other areas there's a great opportunities now for engineers to move into these sorts of fields so that's that's really great to hear. De- definitely, and
2: I think aggregation across the sectors as well. You know, there's a there's a real opportunity here as we decarbonise our transport sector for people to, you know, look at these technologies and see that it, you know, they may traditionally have worked in auto, but actually there may be applications uh, for rail or, or maritime, and, and again, that's exciting for UK businesses.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now. Talking of of CO2 emissions, obviously there has been a significant drive to reduce uh, emissions over the last few years, and none more so than in the vehicle industry. The the average EU-wide fleet targets for new cars will be 95 grams of CO2 per kilometre from 2021, and that's mandated to fall a further 37.5% by 2030. Electrification is currently the main um, commercially viable option for passenger cars that can Meet these sorts of targets. Now, do you believe? And I know that this this is a a, a difficult question to to perhaps uh, examine. But do you believe the UK government is doing enough to implement these emissions targets, or do you think that they could be doing more to deliver on on ele- the electrification agenda? And what what initiatives do you think uh, we'll ex- uh, will see coming out of uh, of Brexit? Wow, (laughs) (laughs) that that
2: is the question. Um, You know, the government have currently got a consultation um, on their phasing out of of the sale of new diesel and petrol cars. So we we don't yet have their decision on that. whatever the outcome of the decision, there will be some people that don't agree with it and, and some people that potentially do. But we know that it's going to be um, a challenge, um, yeah. as, as it always is. You know, that's the whole point of targets, isn't it? Um, really, <laughs> to try and accelerate, accelerate the innovation. But I think what what we need to make sure and you know the ask is really for to ensure that there's a consistency in funding um, and and some sort of stability in in the policy really it's very difficult for companies you know throughout the supply chain to make investment decisions if, if policies keep changing and so that stability is, is really important and and the continued long-term funding um, that you know comes down the pipeline that can help de-risk this development like as Essentially, the, the funding that, that we help facilitate um, is is really important to ensure that the the sector stays strong. And the government the government is doing a lot in this area, you know, particularly around the electrification um, agenda. Um, in July, they uh, they announced an additional transfer funding um, through the uh, Automotive Transformation Fund, and this covers not only support for R and D. Capability, but also a, a tranche of capital investment. And to me, what's exciting is, is yes, that covers, you know, batteries, power electronics, e-machines, so all the fundamentals um, of electrification. But also it does extend out to fuel cells um, because right, yeah. I think, you know, we, we have to be careful that we we don't just go down um, one solution. We know, for example, yes, passenger cars, as you've said, electrification seems the, the right solution. But actually for heavy duty off highway, way those sectors you know they're much harder um to decarbonize and and actually electrification potentially isn't isn't the right viable solution for them uh, in the short to medium term so we have to look at that broader perspective but that fund is also looking at the, the breadth of the supply chain but also taking into account recycling technologies in addition to that we've seen funding in in predominantly in the areas of batteries through the faraday battery challenge um so i think you know that that was you know i mean announced that it, i think it's about i think it's about sort of four or five years ago now um but again that was very much around the collaborative and D activity. Um, and they had the formulation of the Faraday Institution. So, this is the a number of uh, key UK universities being brought together to really address some of those fundamental uh, chemical issues and battery technology areas to see where they can make a difference. And also, there's the, the formation and, or the building of uh, the UK Battery Industrialisation Centre in Coventry. So, that, again, is, is opening um, this year, I think, it, it has been delayed obviously due to the current uh, covid situation um, mm. but it's now sort of open for business and the the whole area of actually the battery industrialization center it's there to help companies go and try their manufacturing processes and look at how they could scale up at volume. Um, they get access to, you know, great bits of kit to see how it would work on their production line, um, look at the technology that they want to develop, look whether their process is improving the system and, you know, becoming more energy and fi- efficient, for example. So it's really looking at how we can speed up the commercialisation of that battery technology. So that's, again, a great um, government investment if you like for for industry to use alongside that there's also the driving the industry strategy challenge fund driving the electric revolution fund that was uh, awarded last year um, for 80 million and again that's focused on um, power electronics electric machines and drives so again you think if you think whilst you've got the battery there you obviously need the control systems of, of the power electronics and the e-machine and the drives to sort of <laughs> use the energy if you like from the battery to make it do something yeah. um, and uh, and that that covers I mean again that's exciting because that actually covers seven sectors so again looking at where there may be sp- over from one technology area or one sector into another to, again, hopefully advance some of these real innovative solutions to market as, as fast as possible. And I mean, the reason why I suppose the the focus has been around, you know, because it it does, I mean, it has seen very heavily, you know, swayed towards electrification and and there is no other option because of, in due course, because of Dieselgate and the challenges that happened with the emissions coming out of our our tailpipes and the recognition around that. Is that we do know that, you know, there's an assumption that, you know, 50 to 70% of new cars and vans, you know, over the next sort of decade will have some significant levels of electrification. So, actually these uh, subsystems will be part of the vehicle no matter you know how, how else it is piled it might not be the full full package but it will be part of it so then just finally i suppose to go to your your brexit question um it, it's an issue it's obviously difficult to say what initiatives they're going to put in place but i sort of go back to that comment I started with, I suppose, that the funding remains stable. And it's important that whatever happens, that the, the UK is seen as a place for companies to come and invest in. I think I think the funding landscape which I've just talked about is is part of that attraction. But also, you know, we've got great opportunities for research and development here. You know, we've got many of the world's renowned universities here. Um and it's about making The UK seem, you know, have demonstrating, I suppose, the UK has the supply chain that some of those companies may may want access to as well. Um, so it, again, it's joining those dots.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's really exciting to hear the the amount of funding that is going into early stage research. And and one of the things that I think the UK is particularly good at is, is creating lots and lots of opportunities, lots of different pieces of research going on that kind of come together to solve bigger problems. And I think for for me, that sounds really exciting. I think there's going to be some great opportunities there from, from a research point of view. So it's, it's good to hear that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's making sure we we capture everybody, you know, and, and plug in all those gaps, if you like, and understanding. But also, I mean, and again, this is where I think that the work that we've done around the, you know, the prioritization, recognizing that we can't do everything. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's always important to um, to think about as, as a business yeah. and a country.
0: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> now, We've heard uh, earlier on in the show from Paul McNamara discussing the the Imechi's EV battery conference that's coming up on the 11th and 12th of November and and there's some really exciting research that's that's going to be presented at that event. What technologies are, are catching your eye Philippa at the moment and and where do you think the next sort of big innovative breakthroughs are going to be made particularly sort of across the EV technology market I suppose over the next 5 years.
2: Yeah, so um, I mean I don't know if I've really got any sort of specific technologies because um, uh, I mean I mean I'm I mean there'll be movements in the say the, the cell chemistry and things like that but I'm sure you'll hear about that um, at the conference and, and I'm, I'm not a chemist so I won't <laughs> <laughs> try to That's attend that yeah. <laughs> um, but to me I think it's important that you know I think we've got a real opportunity at the moment to start actually shifting the way that we look at the way we design our products and the business models that we use and to me one of those really important aspects of this is we need to start talking more about sustainability um, and not just that, you know, it's an environmental challenge, but also the the social It's a social and an economic one as well. And, it, and it's always a difficult conversation and a difficult topic because, you know, we, we know and I've, I've stated you know, several times within this interview that, you know, we're an international market. So how much can you really control in terms of this from a global perspective? But I think, you know, definitely from an environmental perspective, all businesses and everyone has the opportunity to make a difference. But to do this, I think we need to start Businesses talking more about life cycle analysis and starting to use that as a, an important tool of their business because this will start to unveil to them those possible trade offs between you know where they are having environmental impacts across the different life cycle phases of their product development you know so everything from sort of the extraction of the materials through to the the processing through to the end and then the the recycling and reuse side of it I mean and the reason why I say that i think this is a a really important time now to to take this on board is let's learn from our mistakes you know we yeah. we became too focused didn't we on on the emissions coming out of our our tailpipe and and yes, we, you know the in-use emissions have been terrible, and, and it's great that that was flagged. But you know, let's actually then take that holistic view now, because we know that producing batteries is very energy-intensive. So you know, how can we ensure that that's they're being created using renewable energy and green energy, and encouraging those those manufacturers to actually opt for a, a green manufactured battery cell, for example, rather than one that's made traditionally with say a, a dirty a grid, and also so, but then you know, where are those materials coming from? You know, and and yeah. it's there's a, there's a lot in the media. You know, I don't have to go into some of the the mining practices that there are around the world with some of the materials that are used in in batteries and indeed magnets and, and and electric electric motors and even power electronics. You know, in all our phones and these materials are are scarce. And actually, looking at how we extract them and how we reuse them is is an important part of this and and that. You know principally comes from how we design something at, at the start of our start of it. You know, are we thinking about how it's going to be recycled and taken apart at the end of its life, or actually are you going to put it into a second life? Are you going to repurpose yeah. it for something else? And understanding that value chain, I think, is is a really important part of this. So so to me, that that whole sort of changing that principle of how we think about our our products that we are designing and putting out there as engineers you know we need to start thinking about that from the life cycle perspective and I so I suppose coming back to where there are some really interesting potential technologies I think maybe in the whole recycling processes actually in the processing that we're going to see within that recycling aspect of it and how can you get some of those uh, critical materials back into maybe you know a a reusable form um, and trying to understand you know the value of each of our waste streams somebody's waste will be somebody else's primary source of energy or material so so trying to join again join some of those dots to really develop the ecosystem hopefully that can then help us build you know more localized supply chains um, for you know for the the greater good of the UK really
0: I think that's uh, that's a really important area for engineers to be thinking about now. Uh, I th- I'm I'm very interested in the cradle to cradle process and and um, the the circular economy uh, way of thinking. And so, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you, Philippa. I think it's it's very important now for engineers to not just be thinking about the design and manufacture of the technology, but what they're going to do with that technology afterwards so i think that's a great point to make uh for for this particular subject philippa thank you so much for joining us today it's been an absolute pleasure to to speak to you as always thank you for sharing some of your thoughts on on what we're going to be seeing what what's going to be coming out of this really fantastic industry over the next few years so thank you very much for for talking to me today
2: oh delighted to be part of the series thank you very much for having me on
0: There are many voices in the EV world who are keen to extol the virtues of the technology, and none more so than actor turned EV ambassador and host of the YouTube channel Fully Charged, Robert Llewellyn. Robert's show has millions of viewers each month, and he is passionate about educating consumers on an array of subjects which extend far beyond electric cars and enable them to, in his words, stop burning stuff. Robert and I discussed the outcomes from Tesla Battery Day, the importance of vehicle-to-grid systems, and barriers to EV technology adoption. But to begin with, Robert shares where his love of clean energy started. Hello, Robert, and welcome to Impulse to Innovation. We are delighted to have you on the show. Of course, many of our listeners will know you uh, as and the actor who played the very hard-done-by mechanoid Crichton from Red Dwarf. But Obviously, you've had quite a fascination for science and engineering, I suppose, for a while, first as host of the long-running series Scrappy Challenge, uh, and now with your own YouTube channel, Fully Charged, which all of us here at eye to eye uh, are big fans of so thank you ever so much for being with us today
3: well thank you very much for inviting me no it's great great pr- pleasure and privilege to be here thank you no, you're welcome <laughs> but but you're right yes i mean i think my interest in science and engineering particularly engineering i think would well, predates uh, any work i did on television i mean it certainly it goes back to my childhood so you know i was constant i had a very some of your very old listeners will remember uh, uh, this thing it's called Meccano, so it was a mechanical <laughs> yeah. construction sort of a toy, I suppose, but quite an advanced one. And I had a, a, a secondhand massive, I think it was a set 10. It was the biggest Meccano set you could get that I bought from right. a boy I was at school with who didn't want it. And it was just amazing. And I would think it's possibly, I've still got one big box full of bits which i would think is pre-war I would say if not it was very early 50s it would have been made so I and uh i I was constantly building you know cranes and diggers and four-wheel drive gearboxes and I don't know all kind of differentials I, I remember making a differential it took me days <laughs> and it' did work <laughs> it worked I was so proud if you you know all those things so I was really interested in steering assemblies things like that so that kind yeah. of predated all that and then as a as a sort of um, dropout hippie. I wasn't very good at being a sort of stoned, boring hippie. I wanted to do stuff, and so I and I did eventually. You know, I won't do the whole story, but I uh, ended up living in a, a what was effectively called a commune. It was just a sort of house of deep chaos in the <laughs> Black Mountains in Wales. And we built the two two of the guys who lived there built a uh, a wind turbine in, out of bits of junk. You know, literally like a scrap heap yeah. project. Uh, it was a, a, an alternator from a truck on a scrap yard and we used, I think it was uh, uh, old dustbins. We cut up and made the blades. Well, this is su- supremely crude. Cannot, just, I cannot overemphasize how crude this was, but it did actually work and it charged a, a bank of 12 volt batteries in the kitchen with sort of bare copper wires all stuck together. I mean, really haphazard, extremely dangerous, I would think. But it did mean <laughs> that we had lights in a house that at that time was genuinely off the grid. It had never been it, uh, never been connected to the grid. It was in a valley in Wales. It had no electricity supply. So we had electric lights uh, of a sort. Uh, You know, it's very post-apocalyptic, this place. But, you know, that yeah. was amazing. And, of course, because I was, I think, maybe 18, 17, 18 when I was there, Right. I, I had no fear of heights. I climbed up this wretched, wick, rickety wooden tower to oil the bearings, which were constantly seizing. I mean, the whole thing was, you know, very <laughs> rubbish. But I've never forgotten that, and the fact that we used the wind in this valley to make electricity for ourselves, and it didn't cost anything. I was—it stayed with me. You know, I mean, I went off on yeah. loads of tangents, but that was definitely there. So. When things like, I did a series for the um, Open University about engineering and science, and that led on to Scrap heap. And Scrap heap was like a dream come true because this nonsense TV work that I ended up doing by feels like by accident, <laughs> never by design. You know, yeah. this was the perfect combination. It was wearing silly clothes, hanging around with brilliant engineers, watching people make stuff that was, you know, amazing, you know, and being a, an idiot, you know, it was just it was perfect.
0: <laughs> I, I it sounds perfect to me actually um yeah, it's the, it's the kind of job I would definitely like yeah, yeah. um i i think it's it, it's obviously something that's been very sort of close to your heart for a long time and um and that that's really nice to you know it feels like you're kind of an honorary mechanical engineer really here i think
3: yeah i don't i really don't think I should be i mean I would have c- tried to struggle to convince people I was up until I did scrap heap and it was after doing scrap heap for a few years i just went these people are really good you know <laughs> yeah. if i was faced with that challenge i might be able to do so you know if someone said you've got to build the you, your part of the project is to build the steering assembly on this little go-kart we're making if i had six months <laughs> then maybe <laughs> i could do it but you know they worked so fast they, they were so creative they would i mean you know really put it put my skill set in perspective basically which is fairly fairly low. I could do the drawings of it. That's what I'm quite good at. I can draw yeah. an idea like that and work out how it would work. But to actually make it is a whole other step.
0: Well, one of one of the big points of, of engineering is not one, per- one person can't do all exactly. of it. Exactly. So yeah. you have to have people with many, many talents and and yeah. to work in a system to to be able to solve a problem. So, you know, maybe you're, the drawing side of what you do would have <laughs> been, you know, the inspiration <laughs> yeah. for, if, for if Scrappy, yeah, if Scrappy engineers. had, engineers.
3: If Scrappy had teams of 20, I could be the drawer. <laughs> I would be yeah. very happy to. <laughs> I'd make the tea as well and make sure they're all right. No, I mean, I think that was the, but you're, it's a really good point because the critical thing that we learnt over the years of doing that show was you could have, you could meet someone who was a genuinely, you know, extraordinary talented engineer, but if they couldn't communicate and work in a team, it, they would lose, you know, and that yeah. we saw that again and again, it's quite often the slightly more average, maybe not so st- Stupendously brilliant, but just fantastic team operators—people who worked in a team really well with the minimum amount of friction, the maximum amount of cooperation—would win because they just work faster and make a better thing. You know that that was proven again and again and again. It's extraordinary how yeah. how vital the sort of team dynamics were.
0: I think that's a great lesson to to learn. I think our listeners will uh, will be nodding sagely yeah. at uh, at what you said. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the work that you're doing now. Obviously, with fully charged and yeah. and your passion for electric vehicles and for energy storage. I guess, really, my first question, Robert, is Tesla Battery Day this year. Yes, it's it, it's now become really a, a highly highly anticipated event uh, in the EV calendar and. I can say that this year was no disappointment. Tesla are way ahead of any of their competitors when it comes to battery development. And they've just launched their new Vision for for their new 4860 battery, which, uh, according to them, is going to be tabless. Um, It's going to have a higher energy density than their existing batteries, and it's predicted to increase their vehicle range by 16%.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, this to me seems like an incredibly ambitious plan yes um you know what sort of impact do you think that this is going to have on the ev market over the next few years from from the experiences you've had with with what you've been doing
3: i mean i I think it will i think the general public are completely unaware of it and i and and i don't and that i'm not saying that as a criticism it's you know in, in a way if you move from a a four cylinder car with four valves to eight valves to 16 valves. 99% of people had no idea why or, or if there was any reason for it or anything else. But that said, I can only judge from the kind of the questions we get and the anxieties we hear. So obviously, this year has been an exception, but I do an enormous amount of public speaking, particularly about electric vehicles, renewable energy, future of energy and transport. And the yeah. questions, which is always for me the most important part of those events. We're, we're always in the past. Range anxiety. People said I'd have range anxiety. We're going to throw away the batteries after two years. Um, right, yeah. They just are, they don't have the performance. Uh, there's nowhere to charge them. Those anxieties which are all completely justifiable have changed and 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 some have disappeared so one that's gone is range anxiety people don't say that anymore so I think the perception that the cars can go as far as you need them to go (laughs) you know essentially
0: Yeah, yeah
3: um has has kind of worked through the the kind of public unconscious in a way so there's still anxiety about where you charge them publicly and that's a hard thing to understand if you haven't used them uh, mm. and and you have somewhere off the street to park a car at your house, then public charging is kind of right down in the 5 or 10% of importance of your daily. You just won't use it, you know. If you haven't got anywhere to charge, it's a different matter. Um, but so those perceptions are changing. So this will, you know, the fact that a car that can do, you know, I have just done just short of 300 miles in a Tesla Model 3. I know people who've gone over 300 miles, I haven't managed to yet. But it is in mm. a sort of, Two seventy-five to three hundred range is where you can drive to add sixteen percent. To you'll be good at this because you can do maths. What's sixteen percent uh, uh, additional on three hundred miles? I don't even now know this.
0: Now you're putting me on the spot.
3: <laughs> but let's go. Let's go for an argument's sake with three hundred and fifty ish. So if a car can do three hundred and fifty miles on a charge, that is effectively. Uh, seven hours non-stop driving on British roads. Uh, The average speed when you drive on British roads, doesn't matter if you're on the motorway or A roads or whatever, is 50 miles an hour. So you can't... No human being, as I always say, it's not good for you, no human being can sit still and concentrate for that long. It's really bad for you. You need to stop. So my ridiculous argument is its bladder range, which I think is longer for women. I think women have an advantage here. And certainly for older men my age, my, my bladder range has diminished. So I have to stop <laughs> way before the car. So I need a car that can top my bladder range, which is not a lot. 165 miles I did the other day, non-stop. I was really proud. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I think some people were, were, were slightly alarmed and they saw me punching the air when I got out and running for the jet. <laughs> quite understand why it was but so Mm, So those things but the point i think the equally or if not more important thing about what tesla are doing and the and the precedent they have and they do have five to ten years advance on any other car maker for sure and also quite a lot of other battery manufacturers but the important thing is longevity and cost and where the materials come from and what can happen to those batteries when they're no longer sufficient for a car So all those things, I think, are critically important. And they are what is so encouraging is, they are being addressed, you know, so there are amazing companies, we've already done a program about one of them in Germany that are recycling batteries. And they're getting 95 plus percent of the materials that were in those batteries separated and able to be used to make new batteries. Now, yeah. however you argue the initial carbon footprint of manufacturing an electric car and the, the, the equivalent of manufacturing a combustion car, you can't recycle diesel. <laughs> no one's worked out how <laughs> to do that. <laughs> you can't recycle fossil fuels. you know so the, the, the role that a car has. It's kind of completely different of an electric car. It's, it is essentially a battery and a computer on wheels, an energy storage system and computer on wheels. And that's really where the picture, which I couldn't see that when I first went in an electric car in America 20 years ago. I had no idea. It just seemed weird. It seemed like a vacuum cleaner. Why would anyone bother? You know, it's just, it wasn't like a proper, a proper man's car that made a noise. (laughs) So, I wasn't when I first went in, I wasn't blown away at all. I mean, I was blown away by the performance because that car was very fast and it was, I was intrigued by it, but I wasn't sort of thinking, Oh, that's the future. That took me years, I was very slow to come around to the understanding it. But that, you know, that opens up the whole. um, I mean, the the, the sort of thing I start off by saying is electric cars won't save the world because they clearly won't, they're not the answer to everything, but they will open a door to allow us to understand the energy. If you like, the energy matrix we live in and what we consider normal. And it starts to put a slant on what we consider normal. And what we consider normal is going somewhere remote, drilling a two mile deep hole in the ground, pumping out a black toxic liquid, refining it at enormous energy cost, which is never put into the calculations, enormous energy cost, transporting and refining, and then burning it for a few milliseconds in an inefficient combustion engine. You know, that, then you go, that is bonkers that's stupid <laughs> and, and that's really what i think they that whole uh, movement of the sort of electric car industry and it's personified by tesla and i think i always want to say tesla existed before elon musk it wouldn't exist now if it wasn't for elon musk because he made it what it is today but it wasn't he didn't invent the cars <laughs> he had yeah. some but he knows how to find clever people that will do it for him you know which is a very important role
0: That's definitely true. He's a very good leader from that point of view. Um, So, yeah. Well, that kind of leads us on actually to to vehicle to grid charging technology. You talked about obviously the the bladder distance, which I think is a great Unit yes. of measurement. Yeah. Um, for, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with V2G, um, it allows users to save or earn money by using their EV batteries to store energy and discharge it back to the national grid when it's most needed, say, a sort of peak demand during the day. Now, th- this kind of sounds to me like a, a win win for everybody, Robert. You know, you, yeah. you've, you've got a, a renewable source supplying to the grid uh, and a low emissions EV vehicle. However, the, there's very few electricity companies that are offering v2g at the moment yeah. and and even those that are it's kind of dependent on where you are in the country really from what i can understand and and yeah. what ev you have as well um yes. the other more critical problem is maintaining the grid balance as well so do you see v2g and and energy storage as a whole being successfully integrated into the national grid. And, and do you think that the national grid's ready for the increasing surge in, in electric vehicle demand over the next few years?
3: I mean, I can only answer that from th- what I've been told by the engineers who run the national grid. And I've had a lot of conversations with them and in- interviewed them many times. Sure. And I mean, they, are, they don't even hesitate. They don't go, mm, well, we're kind of getting close to it. No, they're ready. It isn't a problem. They're very keen on it. It will actually help them. Uh, and that's a kind of a hard thing to understand, but what they want is what they, the perfect world for the for the national grid to operate the most efficiently it could is that we all consume exactly the same amount of electricity 24 hours a day. <laughs> yeah. That would make their lives very easy. Uh, and we really don't. And uh, so anything that mitigates the enormous peaks and the enormous troughs in in demand, it really helps them to to balance the grid. So if they can call on that energy, uh, that, say, was stored in 5, 10, 15 million electric vehicles, and we're talking uh, gigawatts of, of potential power there, Yeah, they don't need much from each individual car. It might only be a kilowatt hour, four, four or five miles range. It's not like you're draining the battery. It's a little trickle from each one, but because there's so many of them, and once that's integrated into a grid, and that doesn't put a massive strain on any one particular part of the grid, because if you think, say, you've got a housing estate with 250 houses and there's 150 electric cars plugged into those houses, when those cars are charging, that power is going into those cars. Yeah. And that, when probably at a higher rate. And when they're discharging, it's coming out. Well, it's going along the same wire, just goes the other way. And it will be less, I would say, when they're using vehicle degree, because it will be a variable amount they're pulling. So it could be quite a small amount sometimes. So I, that there, from what I understand, this is my understanding of what I've been, had explained to me. And as for the... It will be a slow take-up, I think. It will take a few years before it becomes a common thing for a domestic household. It's not instant, and I'll explain a few of those reasons. But where it's clearly going to kick in very quickly is fleets. So, for instance, Amazon in this country have, have are just taking the first of, I think it's 2,500 electric vans. Now, they have big 100-plus kilowatt-hour batteries in them. They are fitting vehicle-to-grid systems in all their warehousing because they can make money (laughs) it's as simple as that they're not doing it to be green and tree hugging they're doing it because they get you know there's someone high up in in amazon in america in america they've ordered a hundred thousand electric vans uh which are you know which are they're taking delivery of at the moment and that that if you have a hundred thousand vans plugged in and you can sell the electricity that's in them at a crucial critical time of the day when you're not using them obviously then you make money you know that's the the reason why they're doing it and then they can buy electricity obviously at incredibly cheap rates at night or when they're not being used and 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 that helps balance the grid so it is a it, that's what what will drive it is not a uh, is not a greenwash eco credential, you know, press release with a man leaning on the vehicle to grid charger outside the bank headquarters. It's they'll go, oh, geez, we can make a load of money out of this. Yeah. <laughs> and I've seen a couple of so I've been to an office in Tokyo, which had I think forty of their of their employees. It was it was a, a, a company that works with Nissan, so they all had Nissan Leafs. And at the end of the day, each of the people who owned those cars were guaranteed they had enough to get them home and back to the office. So, they had a buffer. Right. You know, they, they would set that. But then all day, that that office had solar panels on the roof and a solar parking, you know, so a, a, a canopy over the cars. Uh, and it was charging and discharging those cars constantly. And at the end of the day, they would... They, they, they had enough juice to get them home yeah. and that was the kind of uh, and that the electricity costs in Japan are different very different I couldn't really understand it when they explained that but they've had a 70% reduction in their office running costs because of that Wow so they're not selling power in that particular instance they're just using it to run the office and that's uh, clearly a, a benefit so that was all the air conditioning all the computers and it was a big office and it had big servers you know had an energy. Uh, energy heavy duty energy use yeah yeah so that stuff is amazing but then quickly to get back to the the only technology at the moment, because this was developed in japan uh, a few many years ago so the chadamo connectors for for um uh your listeners that don't know about electric vehicles and why should they, if they don't have them but they're two common high speed or as they're called rapid Charging connectors—the European standard, effectively, it's becoming now, is called CCS, and uh, doesn't matter what that's like. And then the, oh, the original uh, American, uh, uh, sorry, Japanese version was called chadmo and that's uh, a, a slightly different protocol, slightly different uh, plug. And of course, you can't plug—it's like early mobile phones—you can't plug a Chaddemo into a CCS, and vice versa. Yeah. But the only system that allows. Uh, a two-way electricity at the moment bidirectional is uh, is chatemo so i have a chatemo vehicle to grid charging unit at my house here which is an experimental one um and it it, uh, it uh, and so you you can only plug it into uh, a few cars a mitsubishis any japanese electric cars originally would have had it uh, or a nissan leaf um can do that and they are built to be able to send it so at the moment it's very limited to that but what is changing and that you know and that unit is very expensive no normal human being would put that in their house unless they're a complete idiot like me and i didn't have to pay this is an experiment i did not pay for it because it is thousands of pounds but what there's what's being developed now is a type 2 so if you're driving along the motorway and you stop and you charge on a rapid charger that charges you at 50 kilowatts to now 350 kilowatts a lot of energy if you go to a car park at a supermarket and there's a little socket and you plug into that that is seven kilowatts that's much slower that's adding like 20 25 miles range in an hour right. and that's what you would have at home well that is it's that system so it's called type 2 in this country a type 2 charger which is common across really the whole world particularly anywhere in europe has those charges um that that will only be able to take uh, roughly seven kilowatts out of your car, which is not that much, but it's enough if there's ten million cars, and that is cheaper. And that it, we're going to have to wait until that technology is common, you know, so that when you buy the car, it's already got it in. It's part of the hardware in the car. The the car actually needs some hardware as well as software to allow that bidirectional charging. But that is where it's become much more plausible. I saw vehicle to grid systems. Probably eight nine years ago, but they were phenomenally expensive, massive humming boxes in corporate car parks, where you know the, the head of PR would say, "We're really proud that we're running this office one percent of the energy in the office <laughs> off this electric car." Yeah, yeah. So it's it's come a long way in, the, in that in that time, yeah. and it once it, once you can have Type two bidirectional charging, it just makes sense for anyone who's got an electric car. I mean, I think the critical thing that you, you understand once you've got electric cars, you don't use it very much. I've got an electric car here. I'm not using it. What's it doing? Nothing.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: why, aren't I, why aren't I using it? Why are I putting electricity in from my solar panels? Because it's bizarrely suddenly gone sunny now. Or using that electricity to run my cooker and washing machine, you know. So, I mean, I can do that in my house because I've got batteries as well. I've got Tesla Powerwall. So, that does show, has shown me the, the, the huge advantages of this technology, because my electricity bills from April, so early April this year, till uh, very recently, till the end of September, were under ten pounds a month. And I run two electric cars. I run run one electric car just off solar, and two other electric cars off any electricity that we can get. So, where well, I'm a really heavy electricity user, and if you can run two cars and have an electric house, which we have, electric cooking, washing, all that stuff, water heating, then and you were only paying £10 a month, <laughs> that, then I know I am an overprivileged uh, tree-hugging eco-libtard. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just going through the list of things I get called on Twitter. But, you know, that, I'm really proud that I've done that in my old age. And yeah. as my son, who's 27, pointed out, uh, I know when dad carks it, it, that's an Australian term for f- dies um, we'll get nothing because he spaffed it all on renewables. <laughs> 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 Which I thought was, I had to write that one down because it was <laughs> it tickled me. Yeah, he, he's not entirely right, but he's close to right. But <laughs> at least he
0: knows you've been, you know, environmentally uh, no, sustainable I mean, in uh, yeah, the process. Well, uh,
3: yeah, I mean, I don't, there's absolutely no reason to talk about my family, but it is a wonderful turnaround with my son who was his father and son had a difficult ad- a difficult adolescence so I'm not going to lie we went through some tough times but he's an amazing lad now he's uh, really good and he's a vegetarian he rides bikes he thinks internal combustion cars are the work of the devil you know it's nuts- he hasn't lived at home for 10 years so it's not me entirely you know it's his mates yeah. it's that generation I think well maybe uh, you know, gen- as, you, as
0: you said before of a, you, you know your experiences of, of living off grid and so on maybe he's kind of following in dad's footsteps so that's not a bad thing.
3: Yeah I, don't, yeah, I just hope he doesn't hear this, because if he hears, oh, you're following dad's footsteps, then <laughs> he's immediately become a I'll, massive petrol head. I'll make sure, and- I'll
0: make sure I, I edit that out. No worries. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, now, now talking, of, uh, talking of sort of families and, and homes... I, I've been really excited to see you've launched the the Fully Charged Cities 2020 competition. Now, yes. th- this is a great way of not only highlighting the importance of electric vehicles and clean energy usage, as you've been talking about, but but also to give communities across the UK the chance to share their personal renewable energy success stories. So yeah. to what extent are you hoping to develop this competition? Do, do you see it as being an opportunity for for you know, local governments, councils, business leaders, to share best practice and also to develop strategic EV city planning opportunities. For example,
3: yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, it has certainly been. Um, you know, we were so excited about it in January and February,
0: yeah. <laughs> and it's of certainly
3: kind of on a. It's hovering. It's still going, and we've had an amazing response to it. But it's, it's, there's no question. I think. Um, You know, currently, local councils, in whatever form they take around the world, are slightly preoccupied, uh, which is absolutely understandable. Uh, But I mean, it is very much a global thing. So we've had applications from, you know, Singapore and and, uh, New Zealand and Australia, you know, so it is is not just a UK-based thing. I mean, it is, in a sense, partly driven by our audience. Our our audience on Fully Charged is now 27% UK. So the rest is the rest of the world. So, it, which is, I'm amazed because I didn't think of that when we first started it. Yeah, that's incredible. But, so, I mean, I think it's a really a, a critically important thing to kind of highlight and celebrate the the amazing cities around the world that are kind of act, often acting independently. I mean, America is a fantastic example. We were in Austin, Texas earlier this year because we did our our last live show just before the lockdown was in Austin, Texas, and. You know, you think, I think of Texas completely and not wrongly as an oil funded, very, very conservative, uh, if not reactionary, (laughs) slightly terrifying state where everyone has more guns than you can poke a stick at, blah, 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 all the normal cliches. And there is, uh, I saw elements of that are true, but in the cities, so the, the, um, the urban triangle they call it which is dallas fort worth austin right. those cities are some of the most progressive in terms of their energy use their transportation policy their electric buses there's they have ta- um, electric scooters are mandatory they have r- lanes for them they discourage car use they have car free day you know combustion car use car free days um or you know amazing amount of stuff huge huge solar farms and a massive wind capacity so it's Austin's aim: it's to be a hundred percent renewably powered by. Not long, twenty twenty-five. They're talking uh-huh. about for the whole city and all the industry. And now the Tesla factory is being built there, which is why we knew that was going to happen. You know why they're going to build it in Austin because they've got the workforce there, the education, the backup, the, the, and support from local government to do that. So they will. Uh, Tesla are building. They, they've already said it will be the biggest. I bet it won't, but uh, a truly colossal solar farm. On sort of scrubland that's a few hundred miles from Austin, you know, they will be doing that kind of scale of renewables to run the factory. So, uh, and that what is, again, going back to Tesla, it's fantastic that when they say we're going to have this huge factory and people go, oh, it'll just run off fossil fuels, they have gone the extra. Hundred miles to go. No, it won't. It's wind and solar and battery storage. You know, because when you're talking that, you're talking gigawatt, gigawatt hours of usage every day. You know, it's an enormous amount of energy. So those stories, I think, are really important. So we've done a bit about Dundee, which is amazing in Scotland. What they're doing there.
0: Yes, I saw that that episode of, of the show. Yeah, and they put in charging
3: hubs, which are now just starting to appear. We're about to go and see a really big charging hub that is being nearly finished know all that stuff and that and what i i love about that is you see this big commercial company uh, developing this huge charging hub and they they could just buy the power probably quite cheaply from any of the big power suppliers and they go no we're not going to do that we're going to use our own solar we're going to buy wind power and we're going to do this and we're going to have massive batteries and that's the whole point of this is otherwise there's no point doing it and i always get encouraged when it isn't Me as a sort of whinging observer going, Oh, I should use solar panels because I don't know if it's really possible. And then you meet people who run commercial companies that have to make money, that have to make a profit, have to survive, and who understand the technology. And they go, No, we're using solar. We can do it. You know, that is fantastic. So it's in a way that's what drives the whole of the fully charged definitely <laughs> i just saw the accounts the accounts yesterday it's definitely not making money <laughs> that's definitely not why we're doing it no that's that, that's <laughs> not is, why we do this as no,
0: because we're passionate exactly. about
3: the, the subjects that we talk yeah. about obviously but I mean, clearly, well, I, I'm sorry, the reason I mentioned Austin, that was the whole point, is that you can have a government that is incredibly hostile to this stuff and a kind of populist, you know, that is the case in uh, Brazil as well. There's amazing stuff going on in cities in Brazil that we don't really hear about. And we're trying to make sure we can get something covered on that. Yeah. But you have this very hostile government, the city authorities, all the city authorities in America are, are following the Paris Climate Agreement, even more so now after trump just pulled them out you know so it's actually galvanized more activity strangely uh, than, than was happening under obama far more i mean they really but it it's also a combination it's a combination of politics and the technology the technology has become plausible and affordable yeah. and is increasingly affordable so las vegas las vegas is hugely solar powered now all the casinos have massive solar arrays on their roof i mean on a scale we can't Imagine in this country, gigawatts of solar. Because well, one of the roofs I went on is fourteen acres. Goodness (laughs) me! That's a roof, (laughs) and it's all covered in solar. Yeah, and huge batteries. I mean, really, kind of you know, multiple containers in the back down the back with fans humming. Yeah, amazing.
0: I mean, that leads me on to, to question really bringing us back to the UK, having heard what's going on in, in other countries. Yeah. The UK government has just announced £20 million of funding for schemes designed to increase the uptake of electric cars. Yeah. Uh, and around £12 million of that apparently is being spent on battery technology research. Yeah, um, This was announced... Uh, Uh, on the 9th of September on World Electric Vehicle Day uh, by by our Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps. And he said, this together with our continued support of R&D will see talented UK-based SMEs flourish as well as the creation of uh, 6,000 skilled jobs, which... is great news for the EV industry. It's great news for the supply chain, um, as well as being uh, obviously a much needed cash cash injection for UK's universities and and some of the research centres that are are working on EVs. But do you think this is a good step forward by the government in driving the electric vehicle agenda? Do you think they could be doing more to implement the technology adoption and and particularly the infrastructure that that goes yeah. with it and in what way do you think that they could they could improve on that
3: those are brilliant questions I mean I think oh, I mean I, I I'm anxious <laughs> I think it's a really good thing and obviously they could do more but I think there might be the, the innovation I'm seeing in this country, very specifically in this country is around kind of energy management software. The 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 kind of uh, because my, we used to have an well obviously we were a leading one of the world's leading car manufacturers in my my father's time. So most people's grandfather's time. Uh, you know, a long time ago and that has really diminished and i'm i'm very anxious about its survival now like from next year on i think it's 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 touch and go whether we will have anything that resembles a car manufacturing base here and uh, that you kind of need that background to you know we need if we were producing amazing electric cars by the thousand here uh, that would be amazing but that is that is many, many billions to invest, to get a factory like that going. As yeah. Tesla is a very good example of that. Uh, but there are so many other aspects of the technology that are related to it. So, um, you know, to develop the technology, so cheaper, lighter batteries are more common material. So, and it is happening here now. And I just worry that this sort of focus on just on vehicles because it's something that a politician can go look. We've made these wonderful electric vehicles, and I just worry that we don't have the capacity to commercially produce. You know, what I'm we're talking millions of electric cars, not a few hundred, or not a few hundred for to have a photograph with. You know, you know what Volkswagen have done in in their Zwickau factory is billions and billions of euros investment to convert a huge pre-existing factory. It's where. Um, Trabants were made because it's in what <laughs> right, was Eastern, yeah. Eastern Eastern Germany. It's a really big factory. They've one, they've converted it so it runs entirely off renewables, and two, they are making hundreds of thousands of cars a year, electric. Just they only make electric cars there, and that is a massive, colossal investment. Well, we've got nowhere like that here now, and we've got no company in this country that is like that. But we have amazing skill set of people who are developing chargers that just use your solar power, chargers that know what time of the day to take the electricity and put it in your car. And those are selling overseas. That's, that's A lot of it is not hardware. A lot of it is software, which is annoying for engineers. Um, but then there's other aspects as well, which I think are, are, are really important. And it's when people say electric cars in this country, I get slightly depressed because if they said electric vehicles – hello you know they yeah. we have amazing capacity to make well a rival amazing company just up the road from me in in, in uh, Banbury uh you know are making commercial vehicles electric commercial vehicles well their electric commercial vehicles will be better than anything that Vox, Vauxhall or VW or Renault make in terms of vans because they're not trying to convert an existing van that doesn't have the proper shape yeah. to be able to have a battery skateboard under it and really take advantage of the technology and they're starting from scratch and they're using different materials to make the panels blah 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 and they will they are doing really really well and having huge orders coming in you know so that is a massive success story electric buses we should be making electric trucks we should make electric earth movers i'm very grateful now that jcb are finally starting to produce electric earth movers which in jcb huge employer in this country supply stuff all around the world and they are working out oh i see if we have a, a you know eight ton battery electric digger it's actually cheaper to run <laughs> and maintain than a diesel one yeah. like not a little bit cheaper hundreds of thousands of pounds a year cheaper and they're working out that that is a sellable product you know i had an electric digger here it was fantastic there's no way i could make it run out is the opposite of bladder range it was focus (laughs) range that was because i just went i've dug all day i've dug a really difficult trench i'm exhausted and the uh, battery was three quarters full i've been using for six hours yeah Yeah. so they're really adequate they work and it was so much nicer to use than a a diesel digger with an engine going all the time you know it was virtually silent Yeah,
0: yeah
3: it's amazing so that technology i think we've got a great Uh, uh, advantage on so uh, and then and then it goes much further than that then hydrogen fuel cells shipping you know all that stuff flight the stuff we're doing in aeronautics is amazing um you know that that whole area there's and then of course wind turbines is the other one in that um, technology again a curse because we don't really have a big indigenous manufacturing base for those turbines but at least they are a lot of the technology being built here even though it's owned by danish German, American, and Norwegian companies—they're yeah. doing very well out of our wind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Danes are doing doing extraordinarily well out of Britain's enormous wind success, you know. But it is—it's still brilliant,
0: yeah, you know. It is definitely yeah. well. Robert thank you so much for for taking the time to talk with me today and to to express your passion for this this subject I think we're going to get a lot of questions from from our listeners over the next few uh, weeks as they as they listen to the show so right. once again thank you ever so much for talking to me today uh, it's it's been a pleasure
3: thank you well thank you for inviting me it's been great thanks very much
0: That's all for this month, and indeed, for this year. We'll be taking a break through December to recharge our batteries and to prepare our exciting schedule of episodes for 2021. We will be covering topics across a wide range of engineering subjects, including railways, space, brewing, and even a live streaming episode from Formula Student. But just in case you need an eye-to-eye fix between now and January, I will be having a Christmas fireside chat with our very own CEO, Dr. Colin Brown and President Terry Spall, as they share their E highs and lows of 2020 and what the IMechE can look forward to in 2021. So why not follow our podcast on your favorite podcast player, or on our host site to keep up to date with our latest releases. Details can be found in the episode notes. You can contact us via email at podcast at or leave us a comment and a like. So until next year, from all of the team here at Impulse to Innovation, stay safe and keep on engineering. You've been listening to Impulse to Innovation, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to share any news or any feedback with us, then please email us, podcast at iMeke.org. All the information on this episode can be found in the episode notes.